Hello, good day to you all. Welcome to the Liz Wheeler Show. I'm Liz Wheeler. I just hopped off a plane about an hour ago from DeSales University where I spoke last night to a group of students on that campus. It was a fabulous, fun event. These are bright young students who, um, some of them are part of the Young America's Foundation chapter on campus. They're the ones who invited me and set up the event. The Young America's Foundation sponsored it, but a lot of other students also attended. And we talked about, we actually got pretty deep into the details on how to solve the big tech crisis by first identifying what it is that we're facing, not just arbitrary censorship if you happen to be conservative, but why the big tech crisis threatens humanity and therefore how to unravel it and turn the tide. So I will post that speech for you, audio and video, probably this weekend. So keep your eye out for that on your preferred channel, whether it's on Apple Podcasts, whether it's on Spotify, whether it's on YouTube or Rumble or Locals. If you're not subscribed to my show, please do so. Open up iTunes or Apple Podcasts, click subscribe, go to YouTube. On YouTube, you can find me at Liz Wheeler Show, hit that subscribe button. Also click the bell so that I can send you a notification when we do upload episodes and videos and speeches and interviews. I greatly appreciate everyone who has been subscribing. One of the interesting things about the event at DeSales University was the fact that the questions from the kids, so the setup of these events is I, I'm introduced and I give remarks for about 30 or 35 minutes, and then the remaining part of the hour, sometimes we go a little bit over an hour, we do question and answer. So all the students line up and ask me questions and we have a back and forth. This is conservative students and libertarian students, sometimes liberal students. But the questions from the kids or from the students, I should say, the young men and the young women in university, some of the most interesting questions were actually about ESG. Now, why? the reason I found this interesting is because my speech was actually not about ESG. It was about big tech, yet these young people we're very interested in the environmental, social, and governance metrics that we are seeing essentially controlling our lives, whether that's businesses, whether that's universities. We're seeing ESG being applied from these big banking institutions and controlling businesses. And this wasn't just at the event that the students asked about ESG and were interested in talking about what it is and the implications of it and how to unravel it and perhaps should we and how do we legally prohibit it. I had dinner afterward with the board, the, the YAF board, the chapter on that campus. We had dinner afterward for a couple of hours and we talked about a lot of political stuff, obviously a lot of personal stuff and career stuff. But we talked, we did talk about some of the issues, the political issues that are facing our country. And I asked them, what do you think is the biggest threat to our constitutional republic? What do you think is the most important issue that we face? And some of the students said, you know, the life issues are the most important. There's no, there's no political issue that's ever gonna be more important than abortion. But some of the students said, not in disagreement, but some of the students said, you know, I think ESG is one of the biggest threats that we face internally in the United States. And we had a big conversation about that, particularly because one of the students had done an internship at a big financial firm. He aspires to be in the financial world and will certainly be dealing with portfolios that contain ESG and companies that invest based on ESG metrics and not the the rate of return or the, the highest likelihood of profit from investments. And I, like I said, I was, I was so impressed by these young people who were so aware of what's going on. And I was so surprised that their knowledge of it was 
as significant as it was because they are absolutely correct. ESG is one of the biggest threats that we are facing in the United States domestically because it is the structure through which Marxism will be imposed on our nation and this is happening. It's not something that's that's coming. It's here already. It's conditioning all of our institutions for when the destructive aspect of cultural Marxism successfully undermines gender and marriage and sex and parental rights, when that aspect is successful and those cultural institutions and objective truths, that reality has been dismantled and destroyed, well then ESG is setting up this system for how these global elites will govern us once our system of government falls. So that's actually what I wanna talk about in the show today. I wanna talk about how BlackRock specifically is plotting an ESG takeover with Bill and Hillary Clinton. So let's get to it. Okay, so I love GenuCell plant stem cell therapy. I've used it all over my face and it cleared up the flakiness and even reduced my forehead lines. Someone even asked if I had work done. No, no, just GenuCell, thank you. That, my friends, is a testimonial from Samantha who lives in Arcadia, California, raving about her remarkable results. GenuCell has sold over 1 million products and counting to women and men across this great country of ours and everyone falls in love with the results. Fine lines, forehead wrinkles, dark spots, even those annoying bags and puffiness, gone right before your eyes. Best of all, you can see guaranteed results in as little as 12 hours or your money back. You can see the difference for yourself today with over 60% off their most popular packages if you use my URL, genucel.com slash Liz. It gets even better, I got a really good deal for you. If you go to genucel.com slash Liz right now, then they will include a brand new GenuCell Hyaluronic Acid Serum as a free gift. It's a powerful moisturizing effect of hyaluronic acid to brighten your complexion and further reduce the appearance of visible signs of aging. Plus, all your orders will get free express shipping. Visit GenuCell.com slash Liz. That's G-E-N-U-C-E-L dot com slash Liz. GenuCell.com slash Liz. Okay, so before we get into how BlackRock is plotting this ESG takeover with the Clintons, I wanna just back up for a second because one of the things the conservative movement has done very, very well in the past two years, something Republicans and conservatives haven't done ever before, is we have been able collectively to destroy critical race theory in the eyes of the American population, and we have been able to destroy the transgender ideology in the eyes of the American population. And both of these things, critical race theory and queer theory, which is what the transgender ideology is, this is not, these are not partisan beliefs. There certainly are an element of Democrats who want critical race theory taught, who want children indoctrinated with queer theory. But in large part, the belief that critical race theory should not be taught in public schools and that children should not be indoctrinated with queer theory crosses party lines. Democrat parents and Republicans don't want this. So why have we been able as conservatives to destroy critical race theory and destroy queer theory as these 
poisonous ideologies have infiltrated our schoolrooms and our workplaces and our universities. There's three reasons we've been able to destroy critical race theory and queer theory. The first reason is that we've been able to define these terms. And when I say that we've been able to define them, I'm not talking about long research papers. I'm not talking about books that you read and you say, yes, I feel ya, I agree with you, but you close that back cover and you couldn't really articulate why you agreed with a book or you couldn't encapsulate it into an elevator pitch to explain to someone else. You just feel like, in order to explain this, I need to slide the book to you. That's not what I'm talking about. What we've been able to do with critical race theory and with queer theory is we've been able to define it in a way that accurately describes what it is in just one or two sentences. And by doing so, everybody who hears it not only understands what it is, they're able to discuss it with their family, discuss it with their friends, and they're able to recognize it when they see it in public, whether that's at school, in K through 12, whether that's at university level, whether that's in the workplace, whether that's in the government. After we've been able to define critical race theory and queer theory, and I can define them, critical race theory is racialized Marxism. It teaches white people that they're inherently racist based on the color of their skin and teaches black people that they're inherently oppressed based on the color of their skin. That's it. That's the one sentence definition of critical race theory. You can then go into the deeper what it is. You can say, well, it's a descendant of critical theory, which is a Marxist theory from the Frankfurt School. It posits the idea, critical theory posits the idea that there are those who are oppressors and those who are oppressed and that people don't choose whether they're oppressors or oppressed. They are oppressors or oppressed based on immutable characteristics. Therefore, there's no redeeming yourself. It's not your choice. You can explain it further, but it can be encapsulated in just that one sentence. The same with queer theory. Queer theory posits that there is no gender binary, that there aren't just two genders, male and female, that gender is a spectrum. Gender is what you feel, how you identify, that gender and sex are not the same thing, that if you wanna be a boy, you can be a boy. If you wanna be a girl, you can be a girl, even if you're not. That's it, that's the one sentence definition of queer theory. And you can do the same thing. You can go a little bit deeper and you can explain the background of queer theory, how they believe in the sexualization of children, they defend child pornography, they defend outright pedophilia. You can talk about how this is an identity-based Marxist theory as well, but you can define it in just that one sentence. Once we've been able to define this and people can understand it, articulate it to other people and recognize it, the second reason that we've been able to destroy these ideologies is because we've been able to demonstrate the widespread infiltration of both in institutions across our nation, in classrooms, as young as kindergarten, children being taught about transgenderism, the 1619 Project becoming an actual curriculum in middle schools and high schools, teaching students that America is irredeemably racist, built on slavery, therefore illegitimate, and our sisters, systems of government, of course, using that using that premise, our systems of government and our, our current country are illegitimate as well. I mean, critical race theory in the military, queer theory in the military, I don't have to give you all the examples. We talk about them on a daily basis. You see them everywhere. After we defined it, we've been able to demonstrate that critical race theory and queer theory have infiltrated every institution. And so the third reason we've been able to destroy these ideologies is because 
we've then be, been able to demolish them. We've held accountable those who propagated these ideologies into our institutions. And we've held our elected officials' feet to the fire if they have the power to extract those ideologies or prohibit those ideologies from being forced on our military members or in the private sector, in corporate trainings, or in university classrooms, or in, you know, kindergarten, first grade, and second grade classrooms. So once we defined it, we were able to demonstrate its widespread infiltration and demolish it by holding those who have the power to remove it accountable for removing it. We've made them defend it or embrace it. And that we are also able to do with ESG, and we are right on the cusp of being able to do this. ESG, environmental, social, and governance metrics, it's a social credit score created by the global elite, conceived by the World Economic Forum, defined by the United Nations, intended to serve as a gatekeeper to doing business. And if you don't score high enough on their social credit score system, then you will be excluded from the marketplace. You won't be able to do business. You won't have access to capital. That's the definition of environmental, social, social and governance metrics, ESG. People understand this. If you talked about this a year ago, not a lot of people were familiar with the largesse of it. Some people in the investing world were. Some people had read Klaus Schwab or had seen from the United Nations back in 2015 when they wrote about this, when they defined what ESG metrics are and how to measure it. But we're well on our way to being able to define this. And so the second phase of this is demonstrating its widespread infiltration. And fortunately, right at the time that we need to do this, the Clinton Global Initiative came back on stage after five or six years away, you know, after Hillary Clinton lost the 2016 presidential election. She didn't quite have the clout for the Clinton Foundation and the Clinton Global Initiative, meaning people didn't want to pay, didn't need to pay her for access anymore because she had access to nothing because she wasn't in government. She wasn't Secretary of State. She wasn't a senator. Bill wasn't the president. And she was not going to be the president of the United States. So the Clinton Foundation, the Clinton Global Initiative took a backseat until now. The Clinton Global Initiative held their annual meeting after a long break. And I absolutely love, by the way, when they throw these things because when they get on stage, behind a microphone, and then they broadcast it so we can hear what they say. They let us hear in their own words exactly what they're plotting. So that's what I want to do today is I want to listen to what CEO, the CEO of BlackRock, Larry Fink, on a panel together with the Unilever CEO, Alan Jope, and one of the United Nations ESG czars. That's an actual thing. Her name is Damilola Agunbi, all served on a panel with Bill Clinton himself. So let's see exactly what BlackRock is plotting when it comes to this ESG takeover with the Clintons. But first, I want to talk to you about Cozy Earth. Let me ask you a question. How did you sleep last night? If you answered, well, not so great, or eh, just okay, or please don't ask. Well, you're not alone. One out of every three Americans report being sleep deprived and your sheets could be part of the problem. That's why I like Cozy Earth sheets. The wrong sheets can trap body heat, leaving you boiling one minute and freezing the next. The solution, Cozy Earth sheets. They are the softest, 
most luxurious and best temperature regulating sheets on the planet. It's like sleeping on a cloud, which makes sense because they're made from bamboo, which allows Cozy Earth sheets to breathe so that you sleep at the perfect temperature all year round. I have them on my bed at my house right now. Cozy Earth even offers a 100 night sleep trial, which means you have up to 100 nights to sleep on it, wash it, try it out. If you're not completely in love, just send it back for a full refund. You can now save 35% on Cozy Earth bamboo bedding. 35%, that's a good deal. Just go to CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. You do have to hurry because the offer ends soon. It's CozyEarth.com slash L-I-Z-3-5. CozyEarth.com slash Liz35. Okay, so Bill Clinton chaired this panel, this ESG panel at the Clinton Global Initiative with BlackRock CEO Larry Fink, Unilever CEO Alan Jope, and the UN's ESG czar Dami Lola Ogunbiyi. Let's hear how they start. I want to say one thing about Larry that I really admire, quite apart from the fact that he's not a climate change denier. <laughs> uh, I'm the target of all those. He, th this might be more important. I think one of the two or three factors most responsible for an unsustainable rate of inequality in the world today is that decades ago, actually, when Hillary and I were in law school, that's a long time ago, <laughs> in the United States and elsewhere, people stopped teaching corporate law the way it used to be taught. It, it, corporations, when I was a kid coming up and when I went to law school, were creatures of the state who had responsibilities to all their stakeholders. Yes, their investors, but also their employees, their suppliers, their customers, and the communities of which they were a part. Then there was a whole long period of time when basically it was the stakeholders here, the shareholders here, and everybody else down here for many places, especially in the United States. And he's tried to bring back the balance not just for climate change, but for the health of society as a whole. And I, I'm very grateful to you for that. I, uh... As usual, Bill Clinton takes forever to say a couple things. But here, here's the thing. This, this perfectly encapsulates the entire panel. This sets the tone for what the Clinton Global Initiative and BlackRock plan with ESG. The tone is, if you disagree, with ESG, then you are a bad, evil person. They use the term climate change denier. That term denier is supposed to make you think of Holocaust denier. They use this term intentionally to paint anyone who disagrees as a bad, terrible, evil person, not just someone on the opposite side of the political aisle or someone who is questioning the science behind the premise of the climate change policies that the Democrats want to impose on us. Bill Clinton does something very, he uses a sleight of hand here when he talks about stakeholders versus shareholders. Now, again, these are their words. So when I say, listen, what ESG and the World Economic Forum want to do is they want to change capitalism, turn it upside down, and instead of making it shareholder capitalism, they want to make it stakeholder capitalism, and they define as stakeholders every leftist 
every leftist policy agenda. Therefore, they're not just serving the they're not just serving their consumers or um, their consumers to get a profit in order to serve their shareholders, which is how capitalism works, but they're serving social interests. They're serving political interests as well. This is what the World Economic Forum has told us time and time again that they want. They want stakeholder capitalism, which isn't real capitalism. It's a sort of Chinese Communist Party hybrid where elitists use the market to profit. They don't they don't own the means of production and distribution like a true socialist economy, but they control the means of production and distribution, which ultimately results in the same thing. That's what stakeholder capitalism is. That's what Bill Clinton is describing as something positive. This is what he's saying they want for our country. They don't want shareholder capitalism. And, and the, the sleight of hand is that he acts as though corporations that prioritize profit are somehow, by prioritizing profit, neglecting to serve society at large. And this is false. Corporations that prioritize profit are typically only evil if they have a monopoly where competitors can't challenge them for harming people, or if the government somehow tips the scales or mandates a product produced by a private corporation. The best example, the most recent example, the most egregious example, of course, is the COVID-19 vaccine, where a private company sold it and profited off of it. They profited at the expense of the people who were taking the vaccine and being harmed by it. But this was not a true market experiment. This wasn't just a corporation being evil, prioritizing profit. They were only able to do that because the government had mandated the vaccine and, of course, protected the corporation from any liability, given the corporation immunity from the liability that they should have, they should have been responsible for. So this is typically—this is Bill Clinton trying to trick people, but typically— when you have a corporation that prioritizes profit, that's a good thing. Because in order to profit, you have to sell people something that they want or something that they need. So not you're, you're not duping these people. You're not tricking these people. You're selling them something that they want. It's, a, it's an equal, a mutually beneficial exchange. You get profit, which benefits you, because you gave a good or a service to someone else, which benefits them. That's what true market, free market capitalism is. It's mutually beneficial and therefore beneficial to society. But we're just listening to the words of, of Bill Clinton and BlackRock and how they want to weaponize ESG. They then, of course, use my favorite word that the radical left always uses, and that is equity. So, Dominola, you and sustainable energy for all occupy a real growing space connecting the United Nations state actors and the private sector in pursuing the UN Sustainable Development Goals, especially number seven, which is sustainable energy for all of us. So talk to the audience here about the importance of equitable access to clean energy while a lot of the world is focused on decarbonizing the economy. Unless it's done in an equitable way, in the end, 
the effort won't succeed, I don't think. So talk to us a little about what you're trying to do with your organization. Thank you, Mr. President, for having me today and to speak about such a uh, important topic that we sometimes leave without, and that's energy poverty. And energy poverty easily affects a billion people, of which 600 million reside in Africa. So when we think about a just and equitable energy transition, we can't think of one or half of the world and leave out the developing countries. The truth of the matter is climate development and energy have to go hand in hand. We don't have to do one and then the other and then come back. And what we're seeing is that the policies and the decisions that are being made by the developed countries are not just and they're not equitable as they relate to the developing world. There is no scenario um, of having a billion people left in energy poverty and still achieving your climate goals. It just, it, it just doesn't happen. Because if you, if you take Africa as a continent, um, and you maybe you stop Saharan Africa and you remove South Africa, you've got 81 gigawatts of energy. That means being born black African like myself, I'm 20 times at disadvantage energy-wise at any other human being on Earth just being born on that continent. That is a huge issue, and that is where the equity comes in. Okay, so first of all, this billion people that she talks about living in energy poverty, this is actually what will happen if these Marxists, these globalists, these elitists ban fossil fuels. The cheapest and most effective way to produce energy for people who don't have energy is through fossil fuels. But these, these global elitists don't care about that. They don't actually want to serve people in energy poverty with energy. They only want to force you and force me to pay for so-called green energy or alternative energy for people in energy poverty. So never mistake what the left is presenting as compassion, never mistake that for real compassion because it is not. There is a solution to that and they're not willing to look at it because it doesn't align with their political goals. So she uses this phrase, a just and equitable energy transition. Now, anytime politicians use the word transition, that's a red flag for me. I get this, this wild like ding, ding, ding warning bell in my head because it means they're trying to change something fundamental about how we live and who we are into their utopian or dystopian might be a better word, their dystopian idea, their futuristic idea. And that's exactly what's, ha what's happening here. They don't want the world, but here in the United States particularly, that's where this Clinton Global Initiative meeting was held. They don't want us in the United States to live the way that we live. They want to fundamentally change everything about our society from the cars that we drive to the food that we eat to the healthcare that we receive to how we live in single family homes in the suburbs, how we how we are our transportation, what they want to shift it to mass transportation. They want to, I mean, they want to force us to eat bugs for goodness sake. You can't make this stuff up. They fundamentally want to change our society, yet they ignore the fact that fossil fuels and petrochemicals, you can criticize the health, the health effects or the, the side effects, the negative side effects that petrochemicals have on your health, but you can't, you can't ignore the fact that we rely on petrochemicals for life-saving things in our world, whether that's the fertilizer and the pesticide that allows developing countries actually to grow food so that they don't starve, whether that's antibiotics or, or the instruments, the medical instruments for surgeries that save our lives. These are the things that would change if these global elites got their way. So when they say a just and equitable energy transition, 
don't ignore that word, transition. They're telling us with their own mouths what they are planning to do, what they are actively doing to us. And then, of course, we have the word equity. What is equity? Equity is not equality. Equity is not equality under the law. It's not equality of opportunity. Equity is discrimination because equity is equal outcome. In order to achieve equal outcome, somebody has to be held back. Somebody will face discrimination in order to produce an artificial result of every single person ending up in the same place. And so not only is equity discrimination, equity is also socialism and authoritarianism because somebody has to be the arbiter who says, well, that person has to be raised up and that person has to be held back so that we achieve this equal outcome. It's discrimination administered by authoritarians. The authoritarians we're seeing right before us on this screen. Equity also embraces this false, this destructive notion that everybody in the world falls into a category of either being oppressed or an oppressor. And this is wrong. It's incorrect. It's an evil idea. But it also is a scary idea because these people on the stage believe that they get to determine who is oppressed and who is the oppressor, and worse, what the penalty is for those who they have determined are oppressors. But the demonization of capitalism in our free market economy is at the core of this policy, and that's what the Unilever CEO actually outright admits. Make the case based on your evidence for the people here who might like to do what you're doing, but think it's not economically feasible. I uh, love the challenging question, Mr. President. Um, of course, when you were being taught at law school, you were taught about fiduciary responsibility. And um, I think most chief execs carry around that sense of fiduciary responsibility and wear it heavily. Um, there is an element of risk and risk avoidance associated with trying to run a business on a sustainable platform. Right now, our company in Pakistan, one of our finest businesses around the world, is underwater. Um, we'll push through that, um, but it's not a great place to be selling food or personal care products when you're underwater or on fire. But I want to shift the emphasis away from risk to opportunity, the other side of fiduciary responsibility. The evidence is building so quickly that people want to buy products from companies and brands that operate to high standards of sustainable behavior and ethical conduct. And our brands, which people see as being making a positive contribution to society or the planet, are growing three times faster than the rest of our portfolio. It's a simple matter of consumer choice. There are often costs in the short term, but we've saved about 1.2 billion euros through sustainable sourcing. This need not be an on-cost. And of course, there's uh, the reputational side um, of sustainability. Unilever is now the employer of choice in 50 countries around the world in our sector because it's a magnet for young talent. People want to come and join companies where they can make a positive impact. So uh, just to be unambiguous, Unilever is not an NGO. We're a for-profit organization. And our commitment to sustainable business and proper conduct is very strongly driven by serving our shareholders as a consequence 
of serving our people, our customers, our societies, and the communities that we do business in. That is such a BS claim when he says consumers want brands that are sustainable. Absolutely BS. Look at even a woke brand, for example, look at Nike. Where does Nike produce their sneakers? In China. Who exactly produces the sneakers in China? Sweatshops? Slave labor from the Uyghur Muslims? Consumers don't care about that. They're not willing to boycott Nike. The only people in this country who you hear talking about their objections to using actual slave labor in communist China to produce products that are then sold by companies around the world, but particularly in the United States, are a small minority of conservatives. But consumers at large actually don't care about this. They might pretend to care about it, but they do not care about that. He is making that up. The reason, by the way, that young people, if it's even true that young people want to work at a company because they feel like they can make a positive difference, the reason young people want to work for a woke company is because our schooling system from public school, I'm talking elementary school, middle school, high school, through, through college and university, are indoctrinating people in radical leftist ideology. It's because then they're, they're then being recruited from radical leftist universities by a radical leftist organization. It's not because they independently notice that Unilever is, is acting the way that they are. But really, the big picture, those are, those are my nitty-gritty <laughs> criticisms with what he said, just stupid, idiotic stuff that he's saying. But truthfully, what he is expressing is the idea, and you'll hear this from those who propagate ESG. This is, this is actually the fundamental message that they're trying to imprint on your brain, is that you can't do good and do well. You can't do good for society and also do well financially. This message is the complete opposite of what a free market economy and a capitalist society has proven that transactions between businesses and consumers that yes, profits businesses because they're selling a consumer something that consumer needs, that that is a mutually beneficial interaction, a voluntary and mutually beneficial interaction. So that phrase right there, you can't do well and do good, or you can't do good and do well, is anti-capitalist. Anti-capitalism. When you hear that, understand what they're propagating. And then, of course, the CEO of BlackRock tries to convince the world that in order to make an investment, in order to make the analysis between a risk and a benefit for an investment, you actually have to take into account climate change. It's not just your social responsibility. Financially, he tries to claim it actually makes sense. Before we, before we get to that, I want to talk to you for a second about Upside. Upside is a new sponsor on the show, and I love them because, unfortunately, we're all hurting from Biden's sky-high inflation, and Upside helps me earn money back on my purchases. Upside is an incredible app for anyone who buys gas, groceries, or dines out, which means all of us. With every purchase, I'm earning cash back thanks to Upside. Don't worry, I can vouch for it. Upside isn't too good to be true. I've used it, and it works. Upside is a no-brainer. To get started, all you have to do is download the free Upside app. It is free. 
Use my promo code LIZ5 and you will get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. Next, you will claim an offer for whatever you're buying on the app on Upside. You just check in at the business where you're making a purchase, you pay as usual with a credit or a debit card, and then you get paid by Upside. In comparison to credit card rewards or loyalty programs, you can earn three times more cash back with Upside. Upside users are earning more than a million dollars every week. So download the free Upside app and use my promo code LIZ5 to get $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more. That's $5 or more cash back on your first purchase of $10 or more if you use my promo code LIZ5. I highly encourage you to get the free Upside app today. So Larry Fink, the CEO of BlackRock, who is probably, even though Bill Clinton is on that stage, probably the most powerful person on that stage during this panel, claims that climate risk is a legitimate factor in an investment risk. We got to have money to power this uh, shift. What you have forecasted as a tectonic shift as the world prepares for a decarbonized future. So how are we going to get from where we are now to where we need to go? Well, the tectonic shift is happening. We're seeing that in evidence by where crops are being produced and where they're not being produced. So we are seeing big shifts or we're, um, uh, because of heat and drought, we're seeing crops moving. And so we're seeing, a, we're seeing evidence every day that climate risk is investment risk. And people are waking up to that and that's creating this tectonic shift. Um, and we're seeing evidence of whether that is in sequestration of carbon. And, we, and, and we're gonna be working with many large energy companies on the sequestration because they own these big caverns that were once caverns filled with hydrocarbons and now they're empty. And so we're gonna be using that. Um, and so we are not gonna get to a decarbonized world unless we have the ability to sequest you know, carbon. Okay, that phrase, decarbonized future, super creepy. So it's actually anti-human because what are we as human beings? We are, we are carbon. Very, very creepy to suggest that we want a decarbonized future. Carbon credits is what he's talking about here. And carbon credits, to put it very, very simply, is the government picking and choosing winners and losers. The government being the arbiter of what you are allowed to do, whether it's in your personal life, whether it's in business, based on oh, surprise, surprise, a social credit score when it comes to your carbon emission, a carbon emissions. This is the government, again, controlling your actions. This is socialism, spreading the wealth around. It's, it's equity, making sure that there's equal outcome and not equal opportunity. And who controls this system? The people on the stage. It makes you feel like you're doing bad just by existing just by eating, just by living, just by working. This is, a very, this is an evil, evil ideology. But the people on this stage are actually glad that this is happening to us. They're glad of inflation. They're glad of the energy prices because it makes it easier for them to try to convince us that this transition is good for us. Because of the rising energy prices, we are certainly seeing the green premium shrink quite considerably. And so the amount of investment dollars that are going into new decarbonization technology is accelerating and accelerating very rapidly. 
Oh, well, there you go. Because of rising energy prices, we're seeing the green premium shrink. What does that mean? Let's translate that. He's saying, well, people were pretty mad about how much green or alternative energy costs, but when, when regular old energy, when that price went up, well, it didn't seem so bad then to force them to pay the higher green energy prices. This is, this is bad. He is a bad, bad person. It's right there in front of us. We heard it with our own eyes. Our pain is worth it in their eyes because it helps them achieve their political agenda. And so, of course, they take it to the next step. He then goes on to say that he actually wants um, <laughs> to change the world, which we know that's part of their grand transition, but he actually wants to change the rules and the laws of how finance is governed to force this on all of us. But if we are going to change the world, there's just not enough money that's going to go into the emerging world. And uh, we must change the charters of the IMF and the World Bank, or we're, or we're not going to get there. There's just not, there's just not enough capital. It is estimated to decarbonize the emerging world is a trillion dollars a year. We're talking maybe $100 billion is moving into the, in the emerging world. And so, um, but, but there's, a, there's huge pools of capital, but that capital is just not equipped to be taking the first loss piece. And so if we're really serious about the notion of moving the world faster so our children and grandchildren can have that bright future, it has to be done in a, in, in a way that we're bringing all the governments together. We have to relook at the the responsibilities and the roles of the World Bank and the IMF, and they play important roles. They have important connections with all these countries. Um, but we need to find a way to stop thinking about a project here and a project there. That's happening, but it's happening at such a slow rate, we are not going to get there. We're, we're fooling ourselves to think that one project, which may be a significant project, is going to decarbonize the world at the time that we need. And so we have to have uh, a holistic review of how we are going to get there. And obviously we have COP27 coming up in, in Egypt and COP28 in Abu Dhabi. And, and hopefully in these forums that we are going to bring this together and start really thinking about it. But it's, not, it's up to the equity owners of these agencies, basically the G20, uh, and they have to have the desire to doing this instead of just the words, they have to have the desire. If we can do that, the amount of capital that's going to go into the emerging world, into Africa, will be extraordinary. And, and I do believe there is that opportunity in the next few years to do this, and, and, and then we will have not just a tectonic shift in the developed world, but a tectonic shift in all of the world. Oh, okay. Well, listen to that key phrase. It's up to the G20, he said. What is the G20? The G20 are governments. So the private sector is just the start, is what he's saying. The fact that his company, BlackRock, that Unilever, that, that other financial institutions and big corporations have embraced ESG and are therefore forcing it on us, that's not enough for these global elites. They want governments to band together for global control. He literally said it himself. In fact, the Unilever CEO goes on to say that he thinks ESG metrics should be global and mandatory. And the final point is once you have a plan, we need metrics because at the moment we're consistently reporting financial metrics around the world, but we're at great danger right now of fragmenting 
the reporting of non-financial metrics. There's a US initiative from the SEC, there's a, a Global Sustainability Board initiative, and the Europeans are setting off on their own path. And uh, we need to go a little bit slower to go faster on consistent reporting of sustainability metrics. And that's how the flows that Larry and Dami are calling for will happen when you can measure it. Oh, a global metric. That's what he's saying, a global metric. An ESG metric that everybody around the world is forced to adhere to. And then, of course, he goes on to say that if you are opposed to this, if you think that this is dangerous, if you think that it's socialist, if you think that it's communist, if you think that it's Marxist, if you know that it will have horrific, horrendous results, because we've seen this type of ideology and this control of economies control people and oppress people and lead to some of the most catastrophic oppression and starvation in countries around the world. All it takes is picking up a history book to see these things. If you protest this or object to this, well, you are dangerous. Unilever fits into what Larry just said. You know, not every company lends itself as easily as some do to environmentally responsible production and distribution, but what do you want to say about that to other countries, uh, companies in other countries? Um, you know, in 1939, George Orwell wrote that we have sunk to such depths that stating the obvious is the first responsibility of every person. And he was talking about a book on power um, written by Bertrand Russell, but it applies to today because stating the obvious that we have an emergency, we have a climate emergency, is becoming an unpopular thing to do. This anti-sustainability backlash, this anti-woke backlash, um, is incredibly dangerous for the world. And the first thing that Unilever will do is we will not back down on this agenda, despite these populist accusations. So you are dangerous, is what he's saying. He wants to control you, but he thinks you're dangerous. There's a great combination. The, the funniest part, and I guess this is like a funny, not funny. The funniest part is he acts like he's taking the lead on something, but he then goes on to admit that the reason that Unilever is doing what they're doing is because BlackRock coerced them to do it. Second thing I would say is there are many commitments out there, but not very many plans. And uh, uh, we were the first company in the world to voluntarily put our decarbonization plan to a shareholder vote. We were a bit worried about it. Uh, some of our board thought that we were going too far. Some th thought we might not be going far enough. And it squeaked through with 99.6% shareholder support. Um, led, may I say, by BlackRock, who are, in my opinion, one of the finest commentators on sustainability and what companies should be doing. That's the part that absolutely slayed me during this whole panel, is he takes all this credit, gives himself a pat on the back, pretends like he's standing up against people that are bad and dangerous people to the world if they are climate change deniers. But the real admission is that Unilever didn't do it on their own. They were coerced by BlackRock. And then, of course, we have the United Nations ESG czar who was asked, you know, where are we going to find the money to do all of this? We're talking in the trillions of dollars. We have, we have countries that are suffering from poverty, people living on a dollar a day. Where do countries like that get the money to do this? And this is her answer. 
about that. I think first, just like Alan said, first recognize it's a crisis. And, you know, just the, how we found is it 14 or 17 trillion for COVID, the money must be there somewhere. Oh, just like we found 17 trillion for COVID, the money must be there somewhere, she said. So what she means, let's translate that. She means that governments like the United States, if they are the issuer of currency, as the United States is, then she means that governments should just print the money. Congress shouldn't appropriate it. They shouldn't collect it via taxes. They should just print the money. They should make up the money. What she's espousing is modern monetary theory. You guys, we've talked about modern monetary theory on this show many times. I did a whole episode on it and how the Biden administration is tied very closely to a woman named Stephanie uh, Kelton, who is one of the biggest propagators of modern monetary theory, which preaches that debt and deficit don't matter, that when governments that are currency issuers need money for their pet projects that the legislature doesn't want to be accountable to the voters for, then the federal, the executive branch of the federal government should just print that money. They should just print it. Debt and deficit doesn't matter at all. Just print the money and then use taxes just to try to counterbalance the inflation that will inevitably occur. This is what the United Nations ESG czar is saying in not so many words. So the big question here is, ESG is here in the United States. It's a growing influence, a powerful influence over business. Your ability to work, to provide from your, for your family, to start a business, to operate in the marketplace, and who are the arbiters of ESG? Who will control you if we allow ESG to take full hold of our country? The people who will control us are people who think of us like this. I, I'm as excited to see all of you um, as I could be. Please be seated. Uh, we're having a wonderful um, set of commitments and discussions this afternoon. Uh, if you've been to CGI before, welcome back. I ran into somebody who said, oh, I'm so excited. I'm seeing people I haven't seen for five years. I think we all feel that way. You know, the last time uh, CGI was held, back in uh, September of 2016, a year that shall live in infamy, um, I think it's fair to say uh, that the world was in a very different place. A year that will live in infamy, she said, 2016. That phrase, a year that will live in infamy, is what FDR said after the Japanese attacked us at Pearl Harbor a year that will live in infamy. This is what she thinks of us. Her basket of deplorables comment was just the beginning. These are the people who want to control us. These are the people who are plotting an ESG takeover of your life, of my life, of our country, and of the globe. If we want to destroy ESG, we have to define it. We have to demonstrate its widespread infiltration into our institutions and our societies and then we can demolish it by holding those who have the power to stop it accountable. Thank you for watching today. Thank you for listening. I'm Liz Wheeler. This is The Liz Wheeler Show.